0: Let me pray before we begin to have a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Father God, we thank you for drawing us together this morning. We thank you that we have come to hear your word and we pray now that you prepare our hearts to be humble before it, you prepare our hearts to receive it and we pray that you will transform us to be more like your son through it. We pray this in his name. Amen. It's worth having uh, Ephesians chapter 2 open, verse 1 to 10 we'll be looking at. Uh, Now I've forgotten what page that was, but I think it's uh, 1174, page 1174, Ephesians chapter 2. Now if you were going to describe our world, uh, both uh, locally here in forward, and the world at large, with just one word, what word would you use? thinking about that. Think about our world, a world uh, separated from God, a world uh, that lives as if God is not there. If you were to describe a world like that with one word, what word would you use? Well, keep thinking. Let me tell you uh, a bit about a place uh, that I visited uh, some years ago on the way uh, to South Africa. I was going to South Africa for a friend's wedding and to uh, speak at a township there. And uh, along the way we stopped off at Singapore. Now I've never been to Singapore before and I haven't been since. uh, But we were there for a couple of days, uh, had some time to kill and so we were looking through uh, all the little tourist pamphlets for something to do and came across a place called Sentosa. Has anyone ever heard of Sentosa? There's a couple of hands up. Now Sentosa, the the brochure was just amazing. It just said this is the greatest place on the planet. Uh, just promised so much, uh, so much excitement, so much fun. It was like a, a theme park, adventure park, all sort of rolled into one, with a bit of a zoo, a beach, you name it. It had it all. Sentosa was the place to be, and their big slogan was Sentosa is fantastic. And so we thought uh, we're in for some fantastic fun. So uh, we'll go along to Sentosa, and so you had to take this little cable car off uh, the main part of Singapore to this little island, which was Sentosa, just uh, over the water. And so uh, we we started to race around this this place, Sentosa, looking for all the things that the brochure had described. And uh, every time we came uh, to a a different uh, part of the park, a different ride or uh, roller coaster, you name it, it had a big sign on it, closed until further notice. And so we thought, uh, well, maybe we've just come to the wrong part of the park. Maybe all the fun, fantastic fun is over at that part. So uh, we kept looking and eventually we found a few sections that were open. There was the water slide section, but the problem with that is you had these really steep water slides, but uh, no water involved in the water slide. So you get to the top with your little mat and uh, you go to slide down you slowly sort of creep down with the mat. It was all a little bit disappointing. And by the end of it, I kind of got the feeling uh, that uh, as far as Sentosa goes, it's as far from fantastic as you can get. And the reality was so much different uh, to the brochure. Now, it may have changed a fair bit since then, but uh, the time I was there, the place was dead, completely dead. And uh, I was thinking about that this week as I looked at this passage because I think sometimes when it comes to our world and when it comes even to ourselves if we are Christians before we were Christians, sometimes the reality of what our world is like and what we were like is hard to take. And sometimes it's far from what we imagine. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 2 because what Ephesians 2 does for us, especially in verses 1 to 3, is it gives us God's assessment of our world take away the glossy brochures take away the advertising all the things that our world might say of itself here is reality Ephesians 2 verse 1 what is our world like without God without Christ as for you you were dead dead was that the word you had in your mind when you were thinking about our world well, that's the word Paul uses and he means it literally. He's not saying where our world and uh, ourselves before we were Christians, we're in danger of death, we're at death's door. He's saying dead, 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 completely dead, plain language. He is saying that when it comes to our world without God, there is not even a hint of life. It's completely dead. And while here in verse 1 Paul's speaking of the Gentile Christians In in, in Ephesus, he's talking of their life before they were Christians. He's talking about people like ourselves, Gentiles, non-Jews. By the time he gets to verse 3, he wraps them up in it as well and he says, really everybody was in the same boat. Without God, we are dead. Hard to take, isn't it? All people, regardless of appearances, regardless of intelligence, regardless of even some sort of sign of morality, are dead without God. Jeremy Bentham, uh, a founder of utilitarianism, uh, was a man with a very dark sense of humour. Uh, And one of the most famous pictures you can find of Jeremy Bentham was a photo taken of him in this this lovely suit uh, with a cane uh, sitting on a chair and he's in a glass case. And really that picture highlights uh, a very bizarre end to Jeremy Bentham's life. Because what he said uh, as his life was coming to an end, he said, uh, if when I die uh, the, university, the London University College Hospital embalms my body and uh, places me in this glass case and sort of wheels me out for every time they have a board meeting and I can be part of that meeting as long as the hospital exists, then I'll give my entire fortune, which was considerable, to the hospital. So that was was his promise. If you embalm me and put me in this case and sort of wheel me out to be part of your meetings then you can have my entire fortune. And so they did it. So each year Bentham was wheeled out to the board meeting and the chairman said, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. (laughs) Now uh, Jeremy Bentham as he sits at those meetings would never raise his hand, he'd never move a motion, he'd never sort of uh, question something that was said. His contribution was utterly worthless. The fact is dead people can't do anything. And that's what Paul is saying about our world and about us before we were Christians, if we are Christians, absolutely, universally dead, dead, dead. And I reckon this sort of plain speaking from the Bible is hard to take, isn't it? Because the people around us aren't like Jeremy Bentham. They're, they're very much breathing and living and walking and thinking They're active. But Paul here is talking about the harder things, the soul. Paul says, without Christ, for all our breathing, for all our talking, all our achieving, we are spiritually dead. When it comes to the soul, such people have no life whatsoever. They are as unresponsive to God as a corpse would be what Paul does in verses 1 to 3 is he goes on to flesh out what that would actually look like, what it looks like to God when he sees our world and when he saw us before we were Christians. Have a look at it with me. First of all, verse 1, to be without Christ is to be captive to sin and transgression. To transgress something means to sort of move beyond uh, the limits, to sort of overstep the mark, to go into the wrong territory. And Paul says to us, any move to reject God, any move to live without him, to go it alone, is a transgression, a wrong turn that gives rise to plenty of other wrong turns. Now before uh, we came uh, to the UK, my brother as a leaving gift gave me a a GPS system, a little portable GPS thing that you sort of attach to the windscreen of the car. And uh, it's been very helpful because uh, we've got no idea where we're going most of the time and this little thing uh, with this little voice, uh, tells me where to go. But to be honest, even with that, uh, I get uh, horribly lost. Uh, the other day I, was, I had to drive up to Leeds to, to visit IKEA. Uh, I've been there a few times already, it's great. Uh, but uh, I was driving up to Leeds to visit IKEA and somehow I missed the turn off to, to where the IKEA place is. And uh, here's this little machine telling me on this three-lane three motorway going at a, you know, 115 kilometres an hour... Wrong way, go back. Turn around when possible. And things like this is just shouting out pieces of advice to me and I'm flying along, there's no turns, there's no way of turning around. I'm saying, what do you want me to do, little machine? Give me something I could work with. And uh, it just kept shouting it and shouting it until eventually uh, a turn off came. But I think when it comes to God, that's the way our world works. God keeps saying, turn around when possible and it's like, no, no, I'm heading this way and I'm heading this way at 100 kilometres an hour. The Bible says we are trapped like me on the motorway. Every step we take is a step away from God and the Bible says every step away from God is a step towards death, not life. And some of the steps are obvious, aren't they? We see it in our news. I was uh, hearing this week of this spate of killings of young men in the south of London. It's obvious, isn't it? How often our world steps towards death, sometimes literally, I saw it in Australia before I came here and I'm not sure how far your country has got with this but in Australia we recently voted to allow the harvesting, in other words the production of stem cells for the exact purpose of research, of killing them. We create life to kill it. You can see how our world steps towards death. Sometimes it's less obvious, isn't it? Whether it be uh, the UK's decision to embrace civil unions as progressive and liberating and and where freedom is found. Whether it be uh, during the week where I saw two sisters of the same family, two sisters, both models, both ended up dying, starving to death. We hold up these people. I saw it early in the week, this sort of horrific image of this girl uh, before she died. And then uh, a few days later, Saturday, reading the same paper, there's the, the, the latest models back on the paper, waiting for the next one to make the same mistake. God keeps saying to our world, turn around when possible. Having detached ourselves from God, we've, it's like we've pulled out the plug of the GPS, convinced we're heading the right way, but God says, you are trapped. He goes on, verse 2 To live without Christ is to be a captive follower of the world and of the prince of this world, the devil. You see it there in verse 2? To live without God is to be a follower. not original, it's not unique. The paths we as humans without Christ forge are well worn paths by those before us. The Bible says they are the paths walked by a slave not a free person. Slaves to the ways of this world and slaves to the ruler of the kingdom of the air it says there which is a, a term the Bible has for the devil for Satan. And every now and then our world gives us glimpses of just how trapped we are even the great ones amongst us. I remember growing up uh, as a child, uh, one of my heroes was a rugby league player in Australia called Peter Jackson. And he was just a, a fantastic player, just, just his amazing sense of when to pass the ball and to pick the gap. Just amazing to watch. Now, uh, Peter Jackson died in his early 30s at the height of his powers of a drug overdose in some dingy hotel in Sydney. This is what the newspaper said that day. They found Jackson lying on his back, fully clothed, on a double bed, arms outstretched, shoes kicked off. Things always seemed to turn out right for Peter Jackson, until Thursday anyway. Here we have one of the great ones, one of the ones our world holds up as the the great achievers, the trailblazers, at the height of his powers, lying dead in some dingy hotel room, when God looks at our world and looks at what we call freedom, He sees how humanity has snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. He sees a world that thinks it's free but is trapped. Our freedom, our choices, our sex, our materialism, our self rule, our tolerance, all of it is not what it's cracked up to be. It's like we've let the Trojan horse in and we're surprised the results aren't great. And the final aspect of the picture of humanity without Christ that Paul picks up for us is in verse 3. To live without Christ is to be a captive follower of ourselves. Paul says without Christ we end up living lives with a goal of pleasure but not pleasing our human nature, the nature that God has given us, that he created us with. Instead we aim to please our sinful nature Once again we think that uh, we're independent, that uh, we're going alone without God is the way to go, the way towards pleasure. But we end up as followers, that's what it says. And not of anything grand, we end up as followers of our own desires and our own thoughts. Desires, the Bible says, that are soaked with death, not life. And so there it is. Verse 1-3, to God's assessment of human life without Christ. Death. Having turned from God, we find ourselves trapped in sin, trapped by our world, by the devil and even by ourselves, utterly bankrupt. And the Bible says here we live this way to God's great anger. It is no small thing, the mess we have made of ourselves. God looks at us and he doesn't see dignity or joy or freedom. He sees a deathly hollow shell now riddled with the effects of sin. He doesn't see human creatures who are human in nature. He sees creatures who are by nature objects of his wrath. You think I'm exaggerating? Look again at those first few words of verse 1. As for you, you were dead. There we are in all our glory like Now I've got to say I love this passage, absolutely love it. And uh, you might be wondering at this point, uh, what's to love about this passage? But I think we need to see very clearly this picture of humanity that the Bible gives us if we are going to see how wonderful our God is as this passage goes on. Verse 1 to 3, as for you, now verse 4, but as for God. And then Paul goes on to give us four wonderful descriptions of him. First 1, verse 4, but as for you, but as for God, he is rich in mercy. He's always been that way. The Bible tells us again and again it's the catch cry of the Old Testament. A God who is full of mercy. Jonah 4 verse 2, you've got Jonah complaining that God is like this. His nature is always to have mercy. We saw a few weeks ago that that pleases him. It's his pleasure to be merciful. Mercy which is unexpected love, unexpected generosity shown to someone in desperate trouble. The Bible says God is full of action like that. But as for God, his love is great. Verse 4 again. And Ephesians will go on to articulate the dimensions of this love in the wonderful and famous prayer in chapter 3 where Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. As for God, he is great in love. Verses 5, verse 7, verse 8. As for God, he is rich in grace. It's hard to miss this one. The passage keeps coming back to it. It's really like the golden thread all the way through the passage. And we'll come back to it in a few moments. But the final picture Paul gives us of our God. Verse 7. As for God... He is kind. Every night uh, as I'm putting Finn to bed, we uh, pray, uh, spend a little bit of time praying. He's only recently got into the habit of doing himself and uh, usually it follows the exact pattern of words and he generally prays for uh, thanking God for uh, the muffin he ate that day or random things like that. It's fantastic to hear. But every night we try to pray the exact same thing at one point. We try to thank God for his kindness I want Finn to know that above all else that his God is kind. I reckon that word kindness has kind of lost its value and its currency in modern times. When we think of kindness we've got a a pretty small view of what it is. It's it's a, a box of chocolates or flowers for a sick friend or a phone call or something like that, all of which is good. But remember whom God is showing his kindness to. His enemy. Object of his wrath those who have rejected him. God sees the mess we've made and he is angry for he is a holy God and we've covered ourselves in sin. But he sees more than that, he sees our desperate need. Objects of wrath, yes, but because of his grace, objects of love and mercy and kindness. And like his incomparably great power that we saw a few weeks ago by which he raised Christ from the dead, His grace is likewise incomparable, incomparably rich. And so what has he done with this wealth? How has he shown his kindness to us? Well, this is where God's power and God's grace come together. What happens when the richness of God's grace meets the bankruptcy of human rebellion? Well, have a look. Verse 5 and 6 shows us what happens. God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What happens when God's grace meets human rebellion? God reverses the irreversible. That's what happens. To quote C.S. Lewis, it's like death itself starts to work backwards. God's grace is powerful to forgive our rebellion and to free us from our captivity to our world, to the devil and even ourselves. God's grace is powerful enough to move us from death to life. Now, uh, last time uh, we were looking at Ephesians we looked at God's powerful resurrection of Christ and now what we are seeing in this passage is something amazing and don't miss it. God's grace is so rich that he includes us in that victory. He includes us in that resurrection. Christ's status becomes ours. What God does for his son, he does for us. He does for those who trust his son. We have been made alive in Christ. And more than that, he has acted to safeguard our future, to protect us. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms far above the things that held us. Our sin, our world, the devil, even ourselves, our sinful nature, even death. How did such a change happen? That the picture of verses 1 to 3 could so rapidly become the picture we are seeing now of kindness in the place of wrath, of freedom in the place of captivity, of life in place of death. Well, it's simple. And as I said before, it's really the thread all the way through this passage if not the whole Bible, verse 5, it is by grace that you have been saved. And then just in case we miss it, Paul says it again in verses 8 and 9, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. How does it happen? By grace, through faith put those two words together, grace and faith, and it makes it abundantly clear that it had nothing to do with human effort or human merit. Really, faith just means accepting what has already been done in Christ. But there's something even more amazing being said here. Have a look again at verse 8. Have a look at the how. The word there, uh, faith, the Greek word, literally uh, should be translated faith of Uh, Now usually there's no point uh, talking about this sort of thing but it's really important to see what's being said here in verse 8. The word faith is in the genitive which means that it has an owner, faith of someone, someone owns this faith and the owner of the faith in the sentence is Jesus, not us. So it should be translated the faithfulness of Christ. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Salvation comes about through Christ's faithfulness, not mine his obedience to his Father, not mine. And it makes the rest of verses 8 and 9 stand out even more sharply. This is how it should be said. It is by grace that you have been saved through the faithfulness of Christ, not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not by human effort, so that no one can boast. You see, to look back on our history is to see nothing that we can boast in but plenty to praise our glorious God for. As for us, our CV is totally empty. Dead men bring nothing to the table. There is no boasting. Now I reckon this is the epicentre of who we are as Christians, these two verses, and who we are as a church. Without Christ we are dead. But with him I am powerfully raised, untouchable, when it comes to the things that held me prisoner. Now, how amazing is that? Now, let me close by drawing out, I think, two huge implications from all of this that the passage highlights for us. Uh, First, you see in verse 7, is if you've seen what we've seen clearly, seen the picture of who we were without Christ and who we are now because of him, then we should be able to see, as verse 7 says, what God is doing in the age that we live in. What God is doing in this age. You see it there, verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What do you think our age that we live in will be known for after it has passed? The age of uh, materialism? The age of terror, perhaps? The age of global warming? Uh, The age where society broke. I heard uh, one of the leaders of a a political party here in the UK say that this week, that now we see signs that society is broken. Are we the age that broke it? The age of moral bankruptcy. What what will our age be remembered for? Well, maybe all of the above. And it's not a surprise, given what we've seen in verses 1 to 3, but do you see what God is doing, even in the midst of all of this? His plan... Is that in every age, including this one, even now, that his kindness in Jesus will be on show in the midst of all of that? God has saved you and many like you for this reason. You were saved so that this age may know that your God is kind. Do you see how God sees us together, his church? We're like a banner displaying his kindness in Christ Jesus. A banner that stretches, verse 7 says, from this age all through the ages to come. What is God doing in this age? Well, he is continuing to show his incomparable kindness. Because now, as 2 Corinthians says, is the time of his favour. Now is the age of salvation. And the final thing I want us to see is in verse 10. If we have seen the picture of who we were before Christ and who we are now we will see what God would have us do in this age verse 10 the great work of this age is uh, not going to be found in a lab or a school or a factory or a parliament or even a battlefield the great work of this age and any that may follow it is God's grace you see God is doing something spectacular even now He is raising the dead, even now. Dead men can do nothing, but living ones, well, that's a different story, isn't it? And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been raised to show how kind your God is and you have been raised to be a part of God's great work in this age, the work of bringing life from death. One of the iconic figures uh, in Sydney was a man uh, by the name of Arthur Stace. Uh, he wasn't well known for a, lo- for a lot of his life. In fact, he lived a very ordinary life, uh, horrific in some senses, uh, terrible childhood, uh, lived on the streets almost all of his life, um, uh, an alcoholic for the majority of his life. Stumbled into uh, a church St Barnabas Broadway, which is right near the city of Sydney, one night, and uh, heard the gospel and came to trust in Jesus. Now, uh, to our world's eyes, uh, from that point on, he didn't do uh, many spectacular things. In fact, lived a very similar life after that point. But from that day on, he spent the rest of his life, every morning, uh, with a piece of chalk. He'd wander around the city of Sydney and he'd write one word uh, on as many sort of corners as he could. He'd write, Eternity. And he'd write it on as many corners as he could all over the city every morning. People would find this as they walked to work. His great hope is that people would see the life that Christ offers and each morning it would be slowly worn away by the feet or the rain or whatever and he'd go about it the next day. Now we look at a man uh, like Arthur Stace and we think now uh, we're a lot better off uh, than him. I haven't lived a life like him but the Bible says as for you, you You were dead but now you have been raised to life. We could do no better with our life than Arthur Stace did. God has raised you to do good works. God has raised you to bring life from death. Can you imagine a greater work to be part of? Let me pray.